He was a six foot six college football star who caught the eye of the biggest wrestling promoter in America. Are we talking about the latest NXT signing? No, we're talking about Big Wayne Munn. Crazy territory stories, double crosses and swerves. Pro wrestling history nerds. OMG, holy crap, we are back with another episode of Pro Wrestling History Nerds. I'm excited, you're excited, everyone's excited. My name's Nick Gossard. I'm a pro wrestling promoter, but for the moment and more importantly, I'm a pro wrestling history nerd. And I'm here with the Remus to my Romulus. It's Chongo Bronson. How the hell are you? Hello, nerds. Capitastical this fine day, for we are here to talk about Big Wayne Munn. And it is about to be a fantastic tale of just terrifying, I don't know, reality. Reality hits you hard and fast, especially when you're in the position of Big Wayne Munn. Had you heard about this guy before I brought him up? I mean, only in passing, as in like, uh, I, I, the name was not foreign to me, but I could not pinpoint a face or a specific story with the name. He's one of those names that floats around kind of in the background of wrestling history. In a way, he is the most important wrestler you have never heard of. Um, I discovered this guy while reading Lou Thez's autobiography. Also heard about him through Shooters, the toughest men in professional wrestling by Jonathan Snowden. And the only other thing I really found about him was an article by Sean Sweeney, which was published online with uh, worldofwrestling.com. He is so important, so integral, but his story is so short, so weird, so bizarre that it really, how to put it? He's almost like a, uh, a Jack the Ripper sort. He's like a weird myth hiding in the shadows of wrestling history, but we wouldn't be here. Wrestling wouldn't be what it is without him, without his story. If you are a history nerd like we are history nerds and you find a version of the story that may be different than what we are saying, that may be right. That may be a truer story. We are working with subjective stories. This is how Luthez told the story. This is how Ed Lewis told the story. As soon as you start telling a story, no matter how true it is, it starts becoming fiction because you're telling your version. It's the Rochamon effect in pro wrestling. Don't worry, we are working our best to be as close to the truth as possible. Yes, and if, if we do come across a, a bone of contention, please feel free to slide in our DMs. Don't at me. So getting into the story, first we kind of have to set the stage. Set the table. In the 1920s, wrestling had finally started to rebound from the fallout of the Hackenschmidt versus Gotch matches. Work matches had become the norm, leading to an ability to book long-term feuds to maximize public interest in ticket sales. But though it was a work, the wrestlers very much had to be real. These were still legitimate grapplers. These were dangerous men. And because they had that skill set, they could work together and put on fantastic matches that looked as real as anything, but they were more fast-paced and more exciting than the endless uh, Greco-Roman or catch rules that had been seen during the Victorian age until the early 1900s. Yes, no one from the outside, none of the fans at the show could permeate their skill set, permeate their bubble. So no one from the outside had the ability to say, these guys are phoning it in, these guys are working with each other intentionally in cooperation because no one for anyone that challenged from the outside would get thoroughly put in their place. And then they chose to work together for the betterment of the business. And the kings, the gods, the powers that be of this era was the Gold Dust Trio. Ed Strangler Lewis, no relation to Evan Strangler Lewis. His name was an homage to the star of the late 1900s. So it was Ed Strangler Lewis, his manager, Billy Sandow, and promoter slash wrestler, Joseph Toots Mont, and they had pushed wrestling out of the burlesque and circus world and into legitimate sporting arenas. And by signing wrestlers to exclusive and lucrative contracts, they became the central booking agency for the top stars in the business at that time. Oh, Toots, the works and the shoots, they brought together the, the pageantry and the showmanship and the splendor of the theater and the performance and the people and the draw. With the, with the real combative dramatic element of sport competition, 
the best of all the elements. They had seen the individual pieces. And it was the first time we saw that level of galvanization of all the aspects that created what you could argue is sort of the foundation of sports entertainment. And another foundation of wrestling at that time was trust because you had to trust the guy you were working with. Though the business had been exposed as fake off and on as far back as the mid 1800s, it had to be presented as real, as a real sport. People were still betting on this. For better or for worse, there was gambling on pro wrestling. So in other words, wrestling may have become fake, but the wrestlers were still very, very real. And nobody was more real than Ed Strangler Lewis. Ed Lewis was easily as brutal a grappler as his, as his old namesake of Evan Lewis, but his stranglehold was a little different. Instead of a guillotine, he did a neck crank from a scarf hold, which looks a lot like a headlock, but it's a little different, a little more dangerous. Please, please explain how much fun being caught in a neck crank is. Yeah, it's it's terrible. Um, you, uh, if you want to Google a a a successful execution of the technique that was just described, look up Josh Barnett versus Dean Lister when he got him from that Ooh, from that yeah. side control position. But basically, what a neck crank is 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 taking the the pressure to a degree that the the head cannot maintain. The head is going to go to an angle that the body cannot follow, and it's going to put so much pressure on the neck. It's completely um uh separate from whether it's an actual choke whether whether a windpipe choke or a arterial choke a neck crank in and of itself is a really really nasty move and is banned at a lot of lower level competitions and rightfully so it can be very dangerous um like we were saying a choke tends to have the forearm the bicep some part of your arm around the neck, around the windpipe, the carotid artery, and applying pressure to cut off blood or air to the body. A neck crank, however, tends to take the back of the skull and try to push it into your chest. So your chin is disappearing right under your, uh, your, your, uh, your collarbone. It cuts off everything. It is, it's, it, you can't even really describe what it feels like. It is that awful. I did used to love a neck crank. Um, I remember watching Mark Coleman the first time he did, he submitted somebody with a can opener neck yes. crank from guard. And I stole that move and did it to everybody at the gym the next day. Nobody fell for it twice, but I felt like a big man for those 24 hours. Spoiler alert, if you find yourself in a can opener, open your guard. That's all it takes. Open your guard, scoot your butt back a little bit, go to butterfly hips on, or hand, feet on hips. Just take the pressure off. Little tips from Nick and Chongo. Yes, but in all sincerity, a neck crank is one of the most painful and vicious and potentially permanently damaging techniques that can be put on another person. And speaking of things that can be very dangerous to you, back in these days, just like today, you can get yourself in a lot of trouble running your goddamn mouth. Because one tactic by wrestlers and promoters outside the world of the Gold Dust Trio was to loudly call out their champions and claim all the matches were fake, while they instead are a real wrestler. The old, these guys are showbiz phonies, but me, I'm a real grade A ass kicker, because it puts the heat, the spotlight on them, and it forces them to react. It's kind of like the old uh, political game. I want to say it was Lyndon Johnson who told his aide to spread rumors that his opponent likes to fuck pigs. And the aide said, no one's going to believe that he fucks pigs. And Johnson said, I don't care if they believe it. I want that son of a bitch to have to get up there and deny it. Yes. <laughs> no matter how outside the realm of business it may be, if you call somebody out enough, loudly enough on a big enough platform, you're eventually going to get that fight. How many times have we seen in legitimate fighting and boxing and MMA where somebody can come off of sometimes a loss, sometimes two losses, but by running their mouth properly, they get a main event and maybe even a title shot. <laughs> Chael Sonnen. <laughs> well, be careful what you wish for, old chap, because if you find yourself in that position, you, you pull on Superman's cape enough times, he's eventually going to turn around and you better have the firepower to get the job done because if you give someone that's at the top of their game emotional content, the added, what you could call poster board material, the reason to want to really kick your ass and make it personal and not just professional, you better have what it takes to get the job done because you do not want to 
put yourself in the crosshairs of the champ unless you're truly ready to dethrone the crown. And that is what led to the rise in shooters, um, real wrestlers finding themselves in the role of trust busters and policemen. The strategy was to offer these off-brand wrestlers a deal. If you beat my policemen, you'll get the shot you're after. And one of the most feared policemen around at this time was Nebraska's John Pesek, a 185-pound wrestler known for savaging men 50 pounds heavier than himself. He was known for a brutal double wrist lock, as we now know, uh, Kimura. He defended the territory not only by beating challengers, but by brutalizing them. Case in point was his match against Farmer Burns' protege, Marin Plastina. And as we've seen and as we've discussed, if you were trained by Farmer Burns, Martin Burns, you're a tough son of a bitch. Yeah, you come from the elite camp, and that is the top pedigree, but that also means that you have a target on your back. Plastina was under the guidance of J.C. Marsh, a con man who had guided Frank Gotch's adventure across Alaska. You might remember him as Oli Marsh when we told those stories. Plastina called out the champion, Ed Strangler-Lewis, and claimed that all of his matches were fixed, and he called Mont Sandow and Lewis crooks. That is a bold accusation, and he better be ready to back those words up, because back in that day, you had to be, a, you had to be ready to back with the convictions of your own actions. You better be ready to back up the words that you just said, and he just called out murderer's row right there. Exactly. It got to the point where it couldn't be ignored any longer. A shoot match was booked between Pesic and Placina, and if Placina won, he'd get matches with the top stars under his terms. Yes, these, this is a standard practice that is still in place today. For you know the, the decade of the 2000s, I was pretty much had the same job. I was the gatekeeper. We called it the gatekeeper in my day. But your job is anytime you get somebody that is a potential shark, a potential threat that comes into your gym, they think they're Billy Badass. They have this background. They say they're black belt in this or they're from this or they've got a, you know, a black belt in UFC or they're <laughs> the, this guy right here. The gatekeeper is the guy that the, the famous guy the gatekeeper is the guy that the famous guy trains with and is most afraid of and, and puts in the most deep water work with the most dangerous sharks. The guy you got to beat, the underboss to the final boss, the Goro to the Shang Tsung. You got to beat the gatekeeper if you want to meet the man. And let me tell you something, that makes the, the gatekeeper is the number two headband for all you Afro Samurai fans out there. And everyone gets to fight the number two, but not many get to wear the number two. Because in addition to... What if the guy wins? What if the guy shows up the champ? You have to make him earn it, not just for the sake of earning it, but for the sake of preserving the draw for ticket sales. You also have to worry that, oh, we're giving this guy a shot at the champ. What if this guy's a piece of shit? What if he tries to gouge eyes, you know, bite his ear off, kick him in the balls, all the things that can, once again, take away the mystique of the champion, make him look bad, make him look human, so on and so forth. But a lot of times it's just to make the, uh, you know, keep, 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 pick the flies off the, uh, pick the flies off of them. Keep the peace. Although if, if I may, if I may, you know, indulge myself in a rabbit hole story, I was there the night Eddie Bravo was confronted at 10th planet practice at Legends MMA by Hanato Laranja. And no one in, no one in the class knew what was going to happen. And Hanato Laranja issued an official dojo challenge to Eddie Bravo and put Eddie Bravo to sleep in front of several world famous MMA fighters. And it was a very big thing in the fight community out time. Turned out to be a total work, <laughs> but nobody knew that at the time. And so imagine being in the class and seeing your sensei be challenged to a duel of honor by another high level sensei. This is real shit, man. This is, the the honor code of the fight game whether you're talking about martial arts boxing wrestling somebody comes into your house saying they're king shit they gotta have that audition with the gatekeeper and if you beat the gatekeeper then maybe you got the chance attention but 99 percent of the times the gatekeeper's just there to take out the garbage and nothing was more real than this match the match took place at Madison Square Garden and was promoted by Tex Rickard. Legends such as Tom Jenkins, Benjamin Roller, and Ernest Rober were in attendance. 
They were eager to see a legitimate contest between two catch wrestling masters. Instead, they witnessed a lesson being taught to anyone who would challenge the syndicate supremacy over the business. Pesek immediately gouged his opponent's eyes, caught him with headbutts, and even a punch or two. The crowd went apeshit, with several audience members charging the ring after a dozen fouls. A riot was barely averted when Pesek was disqualified. Plastina was taken immediately to the hospital. Pesek and his manager, Lardy Lichtenstein, were banned for life by New York Athletic Commissioner William Muldoon from ever competing in the state again. But the lesson had been learned. Fuck with the gold best trio, and it'll end badly for you. Yeah, the, the, the power protects its power. And when you bark at the, at the throne, you're going to get the fangs, man. I don't think it's a surprising outcome because it, it killed so many birds with one stone. They made an example out of what happens when you come after the Goldust Trio. Correct. Plastina spent a long time in the hospital. His eyes were a mess. Apparently, it was months before he could see properly again. It was a firm lesson to anybody who would try the same tactic of calling them out, trying to make a lot of noise from themselves, interfering with the business of wrestling. And the business of wrestling is selling tickets, telling stories, making money. And if you interfere with that, they had to let everybody know it's your ass. Yes, and in the process, probably made a great spectacle out of it, and 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 cashed in on the money. You want to be a draw with us? You're gonna get. You're gonna earn that money the hard way. And it looks like it took him a few months to be able to fully see all that was done for him by the Goldust Trio. Another example of Pesic's skills and viciousness were on full display against Olympic silver medalist Nat Pendleton, who was managed and promoted by Jack Curley. Curley had been on the outs with the trio, who had seized control of the Midwest, including Chicago, and couldn't get top stars to meet him in the ring. You might remember Jack Curley from a previous episode. He was the man who put together the Gotch versus Hackenschmidt rematch, ripped everyone off, pocketed a lot of the money, got a bad name for himself. So it was very easy to nudge him out the door, and he had been pushed out of his hometown of Chicago. The usual shit-talking about how the trio, especially Ed Lewis, how he was scared of the Olympian, began. By running down the champion, something had to be done. A match was put together, and in front of 3,000 fans, Pesek stepped in with the Olympian Nat Pendleton. Again, it was a massacre. Pesek nearly finished it early with a double wrist lock, but Pendleton held on long enough to escape, only to be caught at the 35-minute mark with a toehold. Pendleton not a catch submission specialist, tried his own leg lock, but was completely outclassed. And what happens if you try exchanging leg locks with a leg lock master? You go to the hospital and then you have to relearn how to walk. He tried fighting out of it until the crowd heard the sickening snap of his ankle. And I have to give it to Pendleton. He actually came out for the second fall, but was beaten in minutes. He was on one leg against a man who was out to destroy him. He had no chance. It is a dangerous game anytime a grappler from the traditional, what we think of as quote unquote amateur or Olympic style wrestling, any of those variants gets into a mixed rules grappling match with a submission expert because the, the, the end game is different. Positional grappling, pinning someone on their back is the end game for your traditional quote unquote wrestler. While in submission grappling for a jujitsu practitioner, being on your, your back is just the start of the puzzle. So it's a, not only is it very frustrating um, strategically for a traditional wrestler going against a submission grappler, but it's also very dangerous because you are going against someone who is trying every successfully executed submission could potentially kill or maim someone. And just because you have executed your objective of putting them on their back does not mean you are out of danger for them executing their objective of turning you into a pretzel. And that's something we saw in the early days of MMA when, well, it was more no holds barred. MMA wasn't a thing yet. It was NHB. Wrestlers, train within the rules of wrestling. Yes. And a lot of that comes down to putting the guy on their back, body control, pinning. Well, when you're fighting a jujitsu man, 
he's fine on his back because the rules of jujitsu allow working on your back from the guard looking for submissions. The fight doesn't end when your shoulders are on the canvas. So the wrestler has achieved his trained objective by putting you your back on the canvas. But under these rules, that doesn't mean anything. And if anything, it means that you are now in the danger zone. You are now where the opponent is at his most lethal. And it always, you know, always reminds me, always brings me back to UFC four with Hoist Gracie versus Dan Severn and Severn was on top. But what do you do with it? The commentators were wrestlers. So they're like, Dan Severn's dominating. I don't know what, what Hoist Gracie is even still trying to do in this fight. He's done. He's out. And nobody knew what to do. Both commentators, Dan Severn, heck, even the people watching it uh, in the audience or on pay-per-view, when he put on the first pay-per-view triangle choke. Nobody saw it coming. Nobody knew what it was. It was like people had to watch the replay and try to figure it out. And I, I did the same thing. This is, you know, back in the early 90s yeah. before I, you know, there was any good grappling schools around here. And I was ordering Henzo Gracie training VHSs to grapple with my friends in my basement like a bunch of dorks. If you kind of run out of tools and the other guy has still has a, a backpack full of weapons, it's going to be a bad night for you. That's what happened to Pendleton. He learned a lesson. His star fell very fast after that. Joe Curley was furious because he'd been running his mouth this whole time trying to get his boy these big matches, and he couldn't get past the policeman. He couldn't get past the gatekeeper. Ed Strangler Lewis, still on another level, still untouched, still doing whatever the hell he wants with his career. However, around this time, Joe Stetcher had returned to wrestling after a few health issues and a go as a professional baseball player. But Ed Lewis wanted no part of him. He knew Stetcher was on his level as a legitimate grappler, but didn't trust him to do what's best for business once the bell rang. And that's an issue. You know, you these were the days where you know, a guy could, uh, you know, put your shoulders on the canvas, take the belt, and what are you going to do? You can't go on Twitter. You can't, you know, get his TV contract uh, taken away. This is a guy who, if you put your shoulders down, he gets the belt, and what are you going to fucking do about it? Yes, the, the era of the double cross, it was a real concern every single time you had a match, let alone any time you were out there with someone that you didn't have that built trust like we discussed before. And that's why... The Gold Dust Trio was so brilliant because they signed all these people to contracts. They signed everybody to these long-term things. It was a matter of trust. They trusted the people they were paying very well because everybody knew that they controlled pretty much wrestling at that point. Wrestling in New York City wasn't doing a whole lot. The Midwest is where most of the money was made, and they controlled that. And if you fucked with them, you found yourself on the outside, usually with a severe injury or two from uh, what a policeman would do to you. So everybody played ball. Everybody was on the uh, on the same page, not just for uh, safety, but for the business as a whole. The trio put endless obstacles in Stetcher's path before he could meet Lewis in the ring, despite the fortune that could have been made off the match. In a match with Pesek, Stetcher lost his temper and punched him in the face, getting a DQ and losing his shot at Strangler. However, at this point, Lewis's title reign was growing stale with the audience. He was in his mid-30s, he'd put on a lot of weight, and he was nearly blind from trachoma. Trachoma is a weird bacterial infection in your eyes, very cur curable now. It was fairly curable back then, um, but what it does, you get it from skin contact, almost like a, a staph infection, but it causes the inside of your eyelids to grow calluses that scratch up your eyes. And for reasons unknown, Ed Lewis was never able to shake this, which makes most of the Ed Lewis stories even more insane, knowing he could whoop all these asses while being nearly blind. The blind grappling samurai who had cauliflower face. He grew calluses over his eyes because he had that much head control in the clinch. And, and if you've never seen Ed Lewis, if you've never seen a photo of the guy, he looks like... He doesn't look like somebody you would expect to be a draw. He is not handsome. He is not built. He looks like he should be running a weird deli in Brooklyn with a cigar out of his mouth. He just has that like classic blue collar build and uh, look, but he was 
insanely dangerous on the mat. He's one of those guys that looked like a, a, a hairy fireplug of a man, but he could grapple for hours upon hours upon hours. He just had that wrestling endurance that never ran out, where he would spend training sessions wrestling people half his age and twice his size for hours upon hours without ever getting winded. It's a different type of endurance. This is before people had to have the, the bodybuilder look. This is pre, you know, the pre-Hogan, uh, pre-superstar Billy Graham, pre-Schwarzenegger's uh, influence on the wrestling business of what a strong action star needs to look like. You could look like you just came off the construction site with just that, like, you know, almost a pot belly, just that just strong stepdad body. And that was respectable in the ring, but people were getting tired of him. He would be a very vicious heel, so people would boo him for two reasons. They would boo him for viciously uh, manhandling their personal favorite star, or they would boo him because they were just getting so sick of looking at him. He had held the belt for three years at this point, mostly in the Midwest. Wrestling, you know, you weren't seeing it every weekend, but you were seeing it enough that it's like, there are only so many matches you can put together between contracted talent before you start going, ah, this match again? Yeah, totally. And that's something we see in WWE now because there's just so much television and pay-per-view content or you know, network specials, whatever we're calling it, where you can only watch the same match so many times over five years before you tune out. And that's what was happening in these arena matches that the Goldust Trio is putting together. It was getting stale. It was getting boring. And most importantly, it was affecting the box office. Yes, and, and Strangler had a stranglehold at that top spot. And and you're right, he was a man that looked like he knew how to work with his hands, and he very much did work with his hands the way he 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 viciously took people apart. He the 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 mindset of someone who's looking for a neck crank, just the philosophy of someone who goes after that kind of move speaks volumes about the kind of vicious competitor that he was. And I'm sure that he wanted to exhaust every single option he could before relinquishing any kind of control on the top spot because draw or not he's a competitor man he wants to he wants to be the guy and despite his bona fides as a grappler at this point wrestling was show business the matches were works and billy sandow realized that someone didn't actually need to be a world-class shoot fighter to hold the title and decided to try something revolutionary to shake up the business. This is when in 1925, he first met Wayne Munn. Wayne Munn was born on February 19th, 1896 in Colby, Kansas. He got a taste for the carnival life as a teen when he was a clown for the Campbell Brothers Circus, while becoming a football star at Fairbury High School. He attended the University of Nebraska where he led the football team to the conference championship, where the six foot, 230-pound player became a national star. He ended up leaving college to serve as a lieutenant during World War I stationed in France. I found no details about that, but I assume it was horrible. There really are no good stories from World War I. Yeah, that just sounds terrifying. But, uh, you know, probably a pretty ideal uh, training ground to be bred for command for war is the University of Nebraska football team. I'm now concerned how he made it through because you have to imagine being six foot six. He like stood high out of the trenches so the Germans could get good shots at him. Maybe he was just lighting fast. I don't know. Wasn't there. Don't have information. Upon returning from the war, he returned to Omaha, found a job as a car salesman, but decided to try his hand at boxing. He trained under Mike Gibbons, and the press watched his progress and compared him to Jack Dempsey, expecting him to be a world champion someday. Reality had other ideas. When he was knocked out on his very first match by Jack Clifford, but he trained hard, came back, and was knocked out by Charlie Paulson. Don't bother looking up either fighter, neither amounted to much. Yes, but it doesn't take a fighter that amounted to much to hit you in the button and to realize that the fight game is not for you. Um, that's one of the things that separates some of the most talented practitioners in the gym from the guys that make it as professional fighters is they can have all the skill and brilliant technique and adaptation and creativity and all of those things. But man, when you get hit on the chin, you either have it, the ability to 
be the wounded tiger and double down on your psychological attack or you break or you get knocked out and you don't really get to choose which one of those three you are. It's like anything. There's that in, there's that uh, undefinable it. There's that X factor, moxie, if you will. And you either have it or you don't. You can't learn it. You can't learn to take a punch on the chin and still have the, oh yeah, motherfucker, we're doing this? All right, let's fucking do this. You're born with it or you're not. It can't be taught. It can't be learned. It really can't be developed. It's either in you or it's not. And clearly he didn't have it. Well, he definitely had it, but he might've not had the chin to go with it. We have a we have a potential star in the making. I mean, you're talking about he's got the pedigree, he's got the background, he's got the look, he's got the height, he's got the he's a war hero. He's got all the makings to be a guy that could truly do something in the business side. And when Billy Sando saw this giant charismatic athlete, he saw dollar signs. Mon had some grappling ability already, having won the heavyweight tournament in high school at the Missouri Valley Conference. So Sandow put him in training, and Munn had his first match on February 12, 1924, in New York, beating Bill Beth. He caught the wrestling press's attention not only for his size, but by incorporating football moves like tackles into his moveset. And that's something we really hadn't seen before, was kind of gimmick moves. So when he came out and was doing like a stiff arm or a tackle, like doing these things that you would see on a football field, A, it gets press. A, it gets a crowd reaction. Nobody had seen something like this before. It was a little bit outside of the moveset of traditional shoot wrestling, be it catch, be it Cumberland, be it Greco-Roman. So he gave it some showbiz razzle-dazzle and people ate it the fuck up. Well, and we have the benefit of hindsight. They didn't, they're, they're, Flash Gordon had not been made yet. So they, the people did not have the example of how effective football maneuvers could be in fighting. And Big Wayne Munn was putting it on display because, let me tell you something, I don't care what you call it, a tackle is a tackle is a tackle. And when I was first transitioning into focusing on fighting more than football, I used to tell myself, I might not be the best grappler or the best wrestler in the world, but I can tackle anybody. We really haven't touched much on his story so far. Do you think with his football background, Wayne Munn could have beat me in the Merciless. I don't know. Did he? I'd, I'd have to see him throw. You know, was he able to? You know, did he have the touch and the command with the rock? You know, he definitely would be getting Ming's daughter. Wrestling fans today tend to get very grouchy when non-wrestling football players walk into wrestling. Um, here's the thing that I truly believe. Football players, especially if they've been at a higher level, are so coachable because they're so driven and they're so used to having a coach up their ass that they understand, I have to train twice as hard as everybody else to get this spot. That's why whenever, um, like back in my my fighting days, if a guy came in with a football or we had a guy who came in with a rugby background, I'm like, this guy's going to be a fucking uh, tough son of a bitch inside of like 60 days because He understands he has to be here morning, five days a week, evening, five days a week. And then he's probably running 10 miles in between because they understand they have to work 10 times harder to get that spot as opposed to, you know, a comic book nerd who just likes uh, Falcon arrows, athletics, coachability drive. That's going to take you anywhere, no matter what the sport is. Yeah. And the ability to, uh, toggle from going 100 miles an hour to picking the other guy up and keeping him safe to the showmanship that's incorporated in the game. There's a lot of elements that translate and cross over from football to professional wrestling. So Ed Lewis and Billy Sandow cooked up a scheme to have Munn beat Strangler Lewis for the title, which would shock the world due to his inexperience, which would lead to a huge box office for the rematch. Ed Lewis was arguably the toughest man in wrestling and absolutely dominated everyone in back rooms and gym matches. Despite wrestling being a work, there was still legit matches happening behind the scenes to establish the pecking order. 
It's unnecessary for such things to happen in today's showbiz wrestling, but it sure would keep the Twitter tough guys quiet. Yeah, and it's it's a, another aspect of the of the uh, bygone era, sort of the cowboy, you know, Billy Badass walk in. You know, we don't have the same level of having an Irish conversation about a disagreement in the parking lot. Now those things get taken to Twitter. Yeah, and here's the thing for people who have never, like, actually wrestled, not showbiz wrestling. We're talking Greco-Roman, freestyle folk, whatever, jiu-jitsu, judo, whatever. If you grapple with somebody, like, legitimately are grappling with them constantly or even a few times, you understand that person a lot better as a person. You trust them. You see who they are. You see what they're made of. You know they're not going to try to, you know, put a thumb in your eye. That you know what they can do. And that just breeds a level of respect. And Ed Lewis, even fat and blind, was still the king of the back room. Everybody knew it. There was a pecking order. It was inarguable. Um, and like I said, that's something, that's another reason why I kind of miss jiu-jitsu because and Brazilian jiu-jitsu, it's not like karate where you take a test, you say, I can count to 10 in Japanese, you get your yellow belt. Jiu-jitsu is, oh, you, you're starting to tap some blue belts. Okay, here's your blue belt. Hey, you're, you're, you, got, you want a good competition. Here's a stripe. It's all earned. So if you're walking around with your uh, three-stripe blue belt, that means something. However... And this is something you didn't really see back in these days because these were very protected closed-door sessions. And this is one of my favorite things on YouTube sometimes is the people who show up to a jiu-jitsu or a legitimate grappling uh, class and have misrepresented themselves as a higher belt rank than they possibly could back up. I love watching videos of somebody showing up with a brown belt or a purple belt or even like a couple times I've seen videos of somebody showing up with a black belt. Ooh. getting their ass absolutely to them and then screamed at for disrespecting every aspect of the art and sport. Oh, the criote, as it is called in Brazil. So whether it was the money to be made, maybe it was a combination of that and just taking the wrestling carny scam to the next level by taking an untrained wrestler and making him a showbiz champion in what was still considered by many to be a shooter sport, they moved forward with this title match. And on January 8th, 1925, Big Wayne Munn faced off against Ed Strangler Lewis in Kansas City, Missouri. The match was scheduled for two out of three falls with the title on the line. Wayne Munn took the first fall, which shocked the crowd. But in the second round, the giant Munn tussed Lewis over the ropes to the floor. The crowd was outraged. Lewis was injured, quotation marks, and won the second fall by disqualification because he was thrown over at the ropes. This set up a third fall with Lewis, bandaged wrap around his body to show how badly hurt he is, unable to put up a fight against his giant opponent. The crowd lost their goddamn minds and booed the much-hated Lewis, with one fan shouting, you big bum, I hope you're hurt. And Lewis refused to hand over the $10,000 valued belt, after taking a pin because he couldn't defend himself. He is injured. That's why this was so brilliant, because it completely protected Lewis. He somehow almost baby-faced his way into what would be the rematch eventually, because he lost via disqualification. He was hurt in that disqualifying moment, and Munn was able to win against the badly injured Lewis. Showbiz razzle-dazzle at its goddamn finest. Fantastic booking, and we call that leaving him a note. A rematch, of course, was scheduled soon after, and a fortune was set to be made by everyone involved. They had Munn defending the title against hand-picked opponents they could trust, building up the rookie champ as best as possible before the big rematch. The Nebraska House honored him for his victory, as in like the House of Representatives. They honored him for his victory. He was offered a tour of Europe and had a publicity stunt where the barely trained Munn taught 1,000 students at Harvard how to wrestle. Munn was living the life of a star. Lewis, however, was making some claims about maybe he was too badly injured to come back. 
creating a lot of drama. He refused to hand over the belt. At one point, he even filed a restraining order, like legitimately in court against Munn. Wow. It didn't really go anywhere, but he legitimately filed a restraining order in a real courtroom over a fake match. What a heel. That is brilliant. He kept the belt and then filed a restraining order. That is good shit, man. I would be wanting to see him get his ass kicked too. Take my money. So they had an amazing plan. They were going to do this rematch. Munn was now the biggest star in wrestling, despite not being much of a wrestler. However, as the saying goes, the best laid plans of mice and men often go awry. Munn was big, naturally athletic, and he had a bit of a grappling background and had trained hard enough to look good in matches and out-wrestle any challengers from the crowd, but he was soon to learn that there are levels to this. Like we've discussed, there's a big difference between a Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu purple belt and a black belt, and a big difference between a black belt and an elite black belt. The guy you see get his ass kicked in a UFC pay-per-view fight could absolutely kick the shit out of you, the listener, and everyone you know in a row. And that reality check came in the form of Stanislaw Zabisco. You may remember Zabisco from our episodes on Gotch and Hackenschmidt, where he was consistently considered a contender against both, but being unable to capture the title. Zabisco was a phenomenal wrestler. He spoke a dozen languages and had a law degree from Vienna. In other words, he was no dummy. So when Tony Stetcher, Joe Stetcher's brother and manager, approached the then 47-year-old Zabisco about changing companies, he was all ears. Yes, the patriarch of the Zabisco wrestling family was truly um, ahead of his time. He was a highly educated, well-versed, and he also understood the under the underhanded nature of the fight promotion element of the game. He was no he was not gonna be a sucker, he was not gonna be a fool, but he saw the opportunity that was presented to him. And Bitterness may have come into play. Stanislaw Zabisco was a holdover from the days of legitimate contests and had a long history with Jack Hurley. The Goldust Trio offered him a good amount of money and kept him working in the ring, but he was seen as a legitimate challenger to put over newer stars. And the constant losses piled up and made him resentful. In 1924, he lost more matches than he did his entire career up to that point. That is a truly hard thing to ask a proud champion to do, especially a guy who came from when he had to earn those victories. And now you're asking him to lay down. He's philosophically the way he approaches the game. He can't. That's one of the hardest things you can ask an old proud warhorse to do. Jack Hurley and Joe Stetcher Feeling like the Gold Dust Trio was standing on their financial necks, hatched a plan to pay Zabisco to shoot on Wayne Munn and take the title. Curly had been running his mouth against Munn and Sandow, claiming, Munn is not even a good third raider. I know of wrestlers who can beat him. I know of 10 wrestlers who will give Munn $10,000 to meet him, and they will donate an extra $5,000 to charity if they do not throw him twice in 30 minutes. The 10 challengers are Jim Londos, Joe Stetcher, Wallet Zabisco, Hans Stinky, Ivan Zakin, Charles Hansen, Marin Plastina, Jack Sherry, Ad Santel, and Nat Pendleton. Not one of these wrestlers can get an engagement with a new champion. His crowd asked that the challenger show the right to a match by beating Pesic, their standoff men. So again, they were using Pesic to kind of pick the flies off of Wayne Munn, a different situation. In order to, they weren't really protecting Ed Strangler, uh, they were just keeping good matches away from the bad wrestlers. But now they legitimately needed policemen, gatekeepers to protect this guy because it's easy to look at the story and almost think of it like the Coen Brothers movie, The Hudsucker Proxy. He wasn't some hasty chump who didn't realize what a con he was in the middle of. He was fully cognizant. He was part of it. He was smart about this. But unfortunately, he just wasn't a great legitimate wrestler. On April 15th, 1925, Munn and Zabisco faced off in Philadelphia. As far as anyone knew, Zabisco was a loyal member of Sandow's group and had previously done the job and put over Munn in a match, laying down two straight falls in Kansas City. As you can imagine, nobody expected anything to go wrong. Zabisco reportedly looked across the ring at Munn and said, Tonight we wrestle, and steamrolled Munn like he was nothing. 
taking both falls in a combined 13 minutes. The ref, who of course was in on the work, tried to ignore the falls, but he had no other choice in the end but to count it for Zabisco. Seeing what was happening, Sandow went into damage control mode, claiming after the first fall that Munt had tonsillitis and begged the athletic commission to let someone else step in for Munt, but nothing could be done about it. Sandow got in Zabisco's face, but the Polish grappler was unwavered as plan. Once the dust settled, Jack Curley emerged and congratulated the new champ. Zabisco absolute dominance of Munt could not be taken away or dismissed. Munn's mystique was destroyed completely, and Zabisco, at the end of his career, now looked dominant after crushing the man that beat Ed Lewis. The entire business was given a black eye, and the huge fortune that Lewis-Munn rematch would have generated evaporated overnight. And that is why the true story is better than anything that has ever been booked. Because you can't make this shit up. Going into your business for yourself changed the entire history of the business. Zabisco saw the opportunity and he took it. And, you know, it is truly amazing to think about, like in current context. Could you imagine a guy who was booked as a jobber on a house show to like some title holder in one of the major promotions, AEW or WWE, and he's booked a job and then he he goes into business for himself and puts... He gets, you know, gets the tap or something like that. Can you imagine what that would do to business? But also, I, I think that the fans would reject that and would would take offense to someone going into business for themselves. And that was a situation. That was a, a, a risk that involved in wrestling. That was a risk in wrestling up until the 80s. It was something you really had to worry about. And it all started here. This is the first time, keep in mind, within a matter of months, we saw our first pure showbiz wrestling champion and we saw our first screw job to steal the belt from some goofball who maybe wasn't worthy in this case definitely wasn't worthy to be wearing the strap in the eyes of real wrestlers a month later zabisco dropped the belt to joe stetcher in st louis on may 30th the same date as the now meaningless lewis munn rematch but it was only a metaphoric belt because the actual physical belt was still with Strangler Lewis. Part of the whole hullabaloo to set up the rematch was he kept the physical belt and never handed it off. So this created a weird split. We had the Goldust Trio, but we also had the group of Stetcher, Curly, and St. Louis promoter Tom Pax, who were now an organized force in the wrestling industry. Making matters worse, John Pesek, also switched sides to the new organization. Up-and-coming star Jim Landos did the same. Wow. that That's a dangerous thing because they got the gatekeeper to switch teams. Now, I'm sure he, inside, he's looking like, when is it going to be my turn? And I'm sure that was an easy carrot to dangle and get him to bite. So they, the gold, the Goldust Trio is real danger now. And like I said, the actual physical belt never changed hands, so now we had a split. Both Lewis and Stetcher had equal claim to being the true champion, and both were promoted as such by the respective promoters and toured defending the belt. But Stetcher was clearly seen as the more legit champion and was setting attendance records in the new wrestling hotbed of Los Angeles. According to Lou Thez, Stetcher dodged Lewis for years, but according to newspaper clippings, Joe accepted Strangler's challenge and Lewis backed out. It seems that the aging and nearly blind Lewis wanted no part of a possible screw job from the ever dangerous and untrustworthy Stetcher. Understandable, I can see why Fez told the story one way because Ed Lewis was his trainer, his mentor, his hero through most of his life. But it did seem like Ed Lewis was starting to protect himself a bit more as he got older, as his health you know, fell apart knowing that one legit submission loss in the middle of the ring, and that would be it for him. Game over. Every champion loses eventually, whether that's due to retirement or due to eventually finding yourself in there with the opponent that's better that day. But no one stays champion forever, and despite whatever tricks and little workarounds and hustles you try to pull off to keep the belt, eventually it catches up with you. And without the title unification match he wanted, Joe Stetcher settled for a series of matches with Pesek, 
who in turn tried to shoot on Stetcher and take the title. The, <laughs> the, refu- <laughs> the referee refused to count the pins, and when Stetcher asked Pesic in Czech, a language they both spoke, what he was doing, Pesic replied, shoot match. Pesic finally submitted Stetcher with a head-scissor wrist-lock combo, and Pesic quickly left the building to avoid the wrath of Stetcher's team, the fans, and every other authority figure. This was his big mistake, because the decision was quickly overturned in his absence, claiming the submission was illegal. Pesic was blacklisted from the business, but only for a year. You know, that's a, well, quite, the, quite the harsh, uh, you know, you'd think that would be a lifetime thing. But once again, we had to, they had to keep everything backstage. They couldn't say in the press, he fucked me over. Yeah, uh, totally. We have to get rid of him. You only could keep him out so long without it kind of looking fishy and damaging the business. But the damage to Stetcher was severe. His reputation and ego were badly bruised. He legitimately thought of himself as the best wrestler in the country, the best grappler, the best athlete in the ring and never in a million years thought he'd get manhandled like that because once again Pesic wasn't winning a close one he went in there announced his intentions and fucking dominated him from start to finish the ref wouldn't count the pins because he's trying to hang on to the worked finish he finally put him in a legit hold and made him cry uncle kind of goes back to what we talked about in the carnival episode where you can argue a pin you can't argue a tap that's right when you make a man cry uncle, I mean, it's pretty inarguable. But always a gatekeeper, never a gold keeper. He decided it was his time to be the man, and he he went for it. And, you know, once a double cross starts happening, then, I mean, then it's fair play, right? So the 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 lineage had accepted that. So I think that it was within his right to do so at this point. And finally, in 1928, Stetcher agreed to a business arrangement that saw him drop the title in a unification match against Ed Lewis. The match was a financial disappointment. I mean, this sounds good to us. Drawing a solid but unspectacular $65,000 at the box office with 7,500 people attending, including the mayor of St. Louis. Wrestling had been fighting an uphill battle in the Midwest for most of 1927. With multiple investigations into the sport's legitimacy, Chicago had many investigations into people gambling or trying to be bookies for gambling on wrestling. Most people kind of knew it wasn't on the up and up, and that started becoming a problem on a legal level. But as good as that box office was, who knows what the planned Munn versus Strangler rematch for the title would have done. This potentially could have been the match that skyrocketed back to the level of the Gotch versus Hackenschmidt match, the first one. This could have filled a baseball arena. This could have been the one that put it back on the map in a huge way. But again, the best laid plans of Mice and Men. Yes, the the one that got away, as they say. And, And that's part of why the evolution of professional wrestling went to the worked finish, because how many times have we seen it? Whether you talk about Ronda Rousey, whether you talk about a Cinderella story in the NCAA tournament, it's it's oftentimes the case where it never reaches the greatest crescendo that the story could become in the real world. You have this meteoric rise, you have this great potential matchup that's going to happen, and then somebody spoils the party, somebody loses to somebody they shouldn't have lost to. And all of a sudden, this great fairy tale narrative is just completely wasted. Yeah, because you have to think about how revolutionary everything we just described is. Wayne Munn was, you know, he he was an adequate grappler, but he wasn't elite. But it didn't matter at that point. It was show business. It was performance art. It was choreography. It was a worked match. And... We no longer needed the legitimate shooters to carry the belt because they thought so long as it looks good. I mean, you almost hear like Vince McMahon, like, look at this, guys. He's enormous. Jack to the gills, pal. Yeah, this giant six foot six former football player, nationally known, World War I vet, former circus juggler. I'm sure that wasn't put on the, uh, the, the programs, but he looked amazing and could, could put on an entertaining enough match that looked good enough to make the fans get behind him. He beat 
the legitimate tough guy who's like, I just like money. I, I'm, con- I'm fine losing in the ring because I know, I know who I am. I know whose asses I could kick. And that's fucking everyone right now. And because of that decision by Billy Sandow, that led to everything we see today because, you know, not, not disparaging anyone, but how many pro wrestlers in the business can win real grappling matches. It's a small percentage, but you know what? That doesn't matter anymore. And Billy Sandow saw that day coming, that way of the business becoming the core of the business. And at the same time, we saw our first screw job in professional wrestling because somebody saw the weakness. There was a lot of resentment from the real wrestlers against the showbiz wrestler. Somebody at the end of their career was paid a good amount of money by the people who had been pushed out of the business by these people. It almost feels like a mafia story. I mean, a very if there were just deaths instead of pins in a ring, this could be like a, a Godfather-esque type of thing because it's just these shady people forming syndicates and plotting against each other and sending somebody to send a message and then the other person calls them out and then this has to, you know, counter strikes and strikes. It's absolutely bananas, but it's real, and it influenced the business for decades. And who the heck had ever heard of Big Wayne Munn? And whatever happened to Big Wayne Munn? Not much of anything, really. He left the wrestling business with his drawing power completely destroyed in 1926. He'd been exposed. You know, uh, after Zabisco ran his ass over, how do you rebound from that? Because it's much like his boxing career. The press was all over him saying he was the next Jack Dempsey. Boom, one on the chin down. Comes back, boom, one on the chin and down. He was built up as this PR dream of a giant showbiz wrestler beating the world, offered a tour of Europe that he'll do later. He beat the world champ under, you know, suspicious uh, um, circumstances to build up the rematch. And In the end, all it took was a 47-year-old legitimate grappler with a chip on his shoulder who said, fuck that noise. I'm pulling the whole uh, house of cards down. He was the snitch in the mob movie. Yeah, totally. And it's it's so many pro wrestling archetypes are contained in this story. Like you said, the screw job. The idea of the big, you know, leading man babyface, the the action hero babyface that wasn't necessarily the best wrestler. He wasn't the best worker. He wasn't the best shooter, but he was the guy that they felt presented. They were, he, he was to be the first sort of face of the company type of guy chosen based on more of his aesthetic and his appeal than his actual ability to get it done in the ring. And we also saw the first ruthless national promotion. Finally, wrestling kind of was beginning to be centralized. And a lot of this led to the original NWA. But these people had to hang out of their business on top of a lot of broken legs and uh, black eyes. These were people who put a stranglehold. It was no longer necessarily a city by city, venue by venue promoter. They they, They staked a claim to an entire region of the United States and physically and metaphorically choked everyone out of it. There were reprisals. Once again, it kind of almost feels like a mob movie because they're fighting over turf. And that's something that, you know, we would see, we wouldn't see again for decades when Vince McMahon started pushing westward and edging out a lot of small promotions, ruining lives, ruining business, taking it all for himself. And unfortunately, in those days of the 1980s slash early 90s, this wasn't a time when they could just send some amazing shooter to put uh, Bob Backlund in a uh, in a Kimura double wrist lock and make him tap out on national television. This wasn't an option either physically or legally. So they got away with a lot more. Back in these days, things could be settled in the ring with either a beautiful perfor- performance that sells tickets or a legitimate ass kicking that takes the belt. And that's something that led to the need to put the belt on tough guys again. They realized this is a work, this is a performance, but especially when in the NWA days, when they go, oh, we're sending our champion to wrestle regional promotions. Yeah, totally. We need somebody who can handle themselves. And that's why Luthez held onto the belt as long as he did, because if you try to do anything goofy with Luthez, you would find your wrist touching your shoulder blade in a double wrist lock, Kimura, however you want to call it. 
they would put the belt on people like Harley Race, who not necessarily the most technical wrestler, but a guy who would put your head up your ass if you uh, if you toughest him. motherfucker ever. You know, you would these would be legitimate concerns because yeah. it wasn't just in the ring. It was it became a thing where it was outside of the ring where you had to defend yourself against Country Bob, who's had too many drinks and sees you at the bar. There was a lot more to protect, even though the business had been exposed constantly. But if somebody came up and called you out, whether as a wrestler to have a match or as a yokel to fight you in the parking lot, you had to answer that call. Absolutely. Because, because once again, you couldn't have Country Joe take your uh, take the NWA belt for the regional promotion. And this is what led to a lot of problems later on when promoters would get their uh, get the belt on their personal star and then try to keep them in their territory indefinitely and not agree to bookings. That's what led to it all cal calming down. But heck, that's that's probably going to be a series of episodes because that's a crazy story unto itself. With his career over, Wayne Munn in 1926 called it quits. He moved to Texas where he was involved in the oil business before dying far too young from kidney disease at the young age of 34. Ugh. Had he been born 100 years later, he would be a star on television. He had the size, the athleticism, the charisma to be a TV wrestling champion in today's wrestling environment. Look at the number of top wrestlers that started off in football. The Rock, Roman Reigns. Oh yeah, I mean, I mean just West Texas State University alone produced um, Bruiser, Bo Bruiser Brody, Stan Hansen, um, uh, The Funks, uh, who else played at West Texas State? Stone Cold Steve Austin played at West Texas State. I mean, the list goes on and on. You can talk about uh, uh, Pillman, foot, Ron Simmons. Football has such a unique cross-pollination with the aspects that make great pro wrestlers that it's just a natty. Ernie, you know, it, from the beginning of the time, the, the, the two sports attract very, very much the same people. So yes, he would have been a star today, but this was the 20s. And the 1920s were a different time, a crueler time, and most of the wrestling world swept his story under the rug and got back to business, keeping legitimate shooters and hookers like Luthez carrying the title for decades after. And I just want to point out that Strangler kept his belt the whole time until he got it back in the unification and he never lost it. Yeah, they. it's just, that's really was the first crack in the... Goldust Trio's stranglehold uh, hey. on the wrestling business <laughs> is suddenly you they put this guy over, they had this great plan, but nobody considered what would happen if somebody pulled a fast one on them. They thought they had all the angles, all the answers, everything planned out. They thought they had the heist planned down to the detail. But uh, unfortunately, Stanislaw Zabisco had another idea. And now, then we had two champions touring, and it kind of pulled the wrestling world back a few decades because now you had two champs claiming to be champs. One guy drops the belt, now we have a different champ. And then they're challenging this champ. Yeah. And the lineage got kind of screwy. And then in the end, of course, money always uh, wins over grudges. They unified him and went back to Strangler, created the, leg, uh, created the, uh, the lineage that we saw carried through all the way into WCW. Yeah, the, the origin of the NWA, the origin of a national territory, and like you said earlier, the, the parallels to the mafia, carving out territories amongst the, the, the organization, the organized crime, the organized pro wrestling promoters. It really is amazing how, how much it parallels you know, the mafia. So that is our crazy story for today, the story of Big Wayne Munn. Like I said, he's the most important wrestler you never heard of. I was fascinated when I learned about this guy. I, I, I wish I knew more about him, but just he's so obscure in many ways. He's a very much a cipher, and we don't want to feel too bad for the guy. He wasn't a dupe. He wasn't a sucker. He wasn't a mark brought into things to take a fall for somebody. He was in it up to his neck with everybody else. But again, when it comes down to the real deal, he just couldn't hang. There are levels to this. And that's just how the, uh, the story ends. So 
Thank you so much for being here with us. Chango, what did you think about this story? Like, what, what you, you hadn't heard about any of this until now. Were you blown away? To be honest, it is the, the most surprising aspect of this story is that they did not anticipate that the potential downfall of putting the title on somebody that could get double-crossed. You are, it's like, okay, I'll tell you a story. When I was in ninth grade, all I wanted for Christmas was uh, the Penny Hardaways. I got them for Christmas. I had to call in the big favor, still believe in Santa Claus, had to work the Santa Claus angle the whole nine, right? I get the Penny Hardaways. First day back to school, this kid who was a total dick, me and him had a lot of problems. He was like, hey, let me try, those are tight. Let me try those shoes on, right? Being the champion is essentially the equivalent of letting that guy try on my Penny Hardaways because either I have to trust that he's going to give them back or I better be ready to do what it takes to get them back. But that is the position you are put in as champion. And he got his shoes jacked on the bus. I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> so this is a story. It's violence. It's a con. It's a heist in a way. I mean, this could have very easily been a Scorsese film with the beats, with the rhythms, with the themes. But I'm just glad we're able to present this to an audience that hopefully is excited to learn about Wayne Munn as we are today discussing it. So thank you for being here. Uh, make sure to follow us on social media, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and most important of all, if you like this show, tell a friend, tweet about it, retweet it, review us, give us a five-star review, say a couple of nice words. It's not for our egos. It's to make our show more visible in the algorithms. We're stuck in the internet age and we need your help. Hopefully you'll like us. We like you. We're glad to tell these stories. For Chongo Bronson, I'm Nick Gossert. We're the Pro Wrestling History Nerds. We'll talk to you next time. Thank you, nerds. Cut Prince Martini. Hey.